millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hello and welcome back to the Napoleon Assist, my friends. We've got another one coming in in rapid succession, hard on the heels of a Kutusov interview, which, let's be honest, you went absolutely mental for. I've never seen download stats like that, so thanks for tuning in. Um, we have another absolute belter. We are keeping up in the tradition of bringing you interesting angles. This is going to be a worthy successor to the uh, Kutusov interview, although it's a completely different um, kind of liner of inquiry. I am joined by Graham Callister. He's a senior lecturer in history and war studies at York St. John University. He co-authored the best-selling, can we just pause to recognise, the number one best-selling uh, battle understanding conflict from Hastings to Helmand. Congratulations, Graham. Um, and he's also author of War, Public Opinion and Policy, which kind of looks at the Napoleonic Wars and looks at not one, not two, but three countries in one book, which we're going to get into because trying to do that for one country is enough of a headache, he says from personal experience. I'm trying to do it for three, I think Graham might just be a sucker for punishment, quite frankly, but we'll, we'll get into that. Graham, welcome to Napoleonicist. How are you doing? Um, well, thanks. Uh, yeah, thanks for having me on. So let's start with a couple of awkward, what seem like really dumb, but sort of are also slightly existential questions that have always bugged me. I kind of alluded it to it in the, the intro there. You know, I've dabbled with this and dabbled is the term. I can't pretend to be an expert by any means. Um, so obvious question number one. What are we referring to when we talk about public slash popular opinion? Because those in themselves can be different terms, actually. It's, it's worth kind of acknowledging. Yeah, oh, well, um, how long have you got? Uh, it's a PhD worth of stuff in that alone. 
Um, so when, when we're talking about public opinion in the 18th century, we're obviously not talking about this the same as we've got now. Um, it is a bit different. And it all kind of comes back to this, this public sphere idea from Jürgen Habermas that in the 60s, he started to theorize and open the door to this idea of there being a public sphere. So a public space where people can share ideas, communicate, discuss, etc. Um, and obviously Habermas's his theories are, are pretty limited, but people since have really developed this public sphere to to give us a, a metaphorical and physical space where people share ideas in the 18th century. And that is where kind of public opinion can happen. If we've got a public, they can start to talk about stuff, they can build opinions. Um, but public opinion is kind of seen as, as two things. Um, it was in the 18th century, and I suppose it is now. Um, on the one hand, you've got the, the very active public opinion, people's outbursts of feeling on a certain topic, uh, you know, especially around wars or around a scandal or something like that, where people actually all have an opinion, all express it, talk about it in the coffee shop, talk about it down the pub, uh, all complain about the same thing, and you get an idea of the public having an opinion on something. But there's also a kind of second strand, um, which is, is much more uh, intangible. And in the 18th century, you find this quite a lot, where people talk about public opinion. What they, they mean is not what individuals think, even a collective think. They mean some kind of intangible truth, um, some kind of reality beyond human comprehension, um, something similar to posterity, perhaps, uh, something similar to, you know, just, just truth. Um, so Louis XVI, for example, says, I must always um, I must always consult public opinion. It is never wrong. Uh, what he means by that is he's not consulting his people. This is Louis XVI we're talking about. He is consulting an idea beyond the system. So there is, for some people, a measure of intangible truth that will justify what they're doing. But of course, as scholars, that's kind of useless. We know that truth is a problematic concept. So how I've theorized public opinion is in, in two ways. Um, and I, I've given it the kind of a um, two, two monikers. One is active public opinion, that, that public opinion of people actively talking about stuff, discussing it, coming to a conclusion. And then latent public opinion, by which I mean underlying social interpretations, prejudices, preconceptions, uh, cultural understandings of things, uh, maybe a kind of closer to Jan um, Elida Aspen's uh, cultural memory, basically the understanding that people have through their culture, the understanding that they get through things. Um, and that kind of public opinion is something shared by most people of a certain culture that underpins things like policy, like decision making, that basically underpins your view of the world. Um, so that, that's kind of how I theorized public opinion. Um, but it's a horrific concept, isn't it? Um, for the 18th century, especially. It really is. Um, and there are a few kind of, oh, Lord, rabbit holes. <laughs> We're on question 1A, and we've already got about a billion rabbit holes I want to explore. Um, but so the first thing that strikes me is that a very good friend of mine once said, and I'm, I'm paraphrasing here for the politeness and genteel nature of the listenership of the Napoleon assist. Uh, but they said that to me that opinions are like backsides. Everybody's got one. It's a question of how visibly you display said backside, which I think is a good way of kind of dealing with the modern phenomenon of Twitter. Um, can you imagine if they had Twitter back in the 19th century? Can you imagine Napoleon on Twitter? Good God. <laughs> I, 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 I'm shuddering at the concept. Um, although, to be honest, I'm amazed there isn't a prolific, perhaps I've missed it, but there, there needs to be a prolific Napoleonic Twitter kind of spoof parody type account. There's an opportunity somewhere 
for someone with a lot more time than uh, than we've got, I think. Uh, this is true. So, you uh, would... Yeah, a daily Napoleon. Yeah, um, I'm not sure I want that in my life. Now that I've <laughs> put that idea out there to the listeners, somebody's going to pick that up and they're going to run with it and good luck to them, but I'm not sure I need that in my life right now. Um, so... Uh, this is complicated because there are so many myriads of versions and you've got as many opinions as you've got people, right? And, and the whole spectrum. So the big question, I guess, is how do you get to public opinion in an age where we don't have opinion polls, quite obviously, you know, mass observation, Gallup polls, etc. There are 20th century phenomenon when you've got a different apparatus for assessing people. And I'm always very struck by something that Ignacio Paz wrote in a, um, an article a few years back now, uh, I think it was 2008, where he basically turned around and said, well, look, you can't really get to the opinion of the working class. It's just not possible. You can't do it. And I kind of sucked my teeth and went, mm -hmm. uh, and at the time I was a master's graduate. So I thought, well, that, that can't be right. And I think actually my opinion on that has mellowed and it's harder to get there, but I think you can get windows into public opinion. Um, and my route into this was caricatures, right? Because they're a visual media. And so you can kind of unpick the different layers within them. But that's got a whole raft of problems in and of itself. You know, they're there to entertain. Do people buy them because they enjoy them or because, you know, has there been a process of commissioning that leads to that caricature so it, it's complicated right everything is produced for a purpose um, and so when it comes to printed material you've always got to have that caveat in the back of your head so how do you get to popular opinion in order to try and unpick this problem uh, so it, it is a, a major problem that most of what is said at the time is ephemeral it's unrecorded it's lost we just simply don't have records of of conversation from most people, even from the, the upper classes, um, from the those with, with more wealth, with more time to write, we do have a lot more material. And often, actually, when we're talking about a responsive or an active public opinion, we are talking about kind of the top 10% you know, of society. Um, and often, I think we are quite lazy in using public opinion of these people to represent everyone. Um, and, you know, it is a problem to find people lower down in society actually expressing opinions but what, what I did with my research as well as kind of you know looking at things at the top um, was try to to seek out some of the the plebeian voices if I can put it that way if I could so things like caricature were quite useful because although there's, there's the problem of authorship and, and propaganda and what they're trying to get to there are also certain symbols within those caricatures that people repeat time and again because the viewer will understand them uh, and certain representations that are repeated and that also carries into other things. So street theatre, for example, we don't have much records of street theatre because by nature, it's not scripted and written down in the same way, but some people did record it. They recorded street theatre or vaudeville or popular songs or bad popular poetry and ditties, especially insulting ones, insulting of other people or countries. Um, and, and some people did record these in, in you know, day books or, or in uh, collections of uh, folk material. Um, and that is really fascinating to get, okay, mediated by someone who wrote it down, but to get the voices of ordinary people. Uh, you do get some private correspondence as well. Um, but again, uh, that, that's pretty hit and miss. Um, another thing I found though quite interesting to find public opinion was actually trial records. 
Um, so trial records in, in London and Paris, especially of people prosecuted for sedition. Um, so for saying things out of turn in a public house, in a tavern, um, in a, a, a space of clearly plebeian sociability, ordinary people are socializing there. It shows one, that the government does care what ordinary people think enough to prosecute them. Two, that they are listening to what ordinary people think, even if through spies or agents uh, or uh, you know, other people well inclined towards the government. But what you get in the trial records and Old Bailey Online, I'll give that a plug here because Old Bailey Online is a great free resource online with the trial records of people tried in the Old Bailey. Um, and you find a few people tried for sedition or treason or, or, or you know, one of the other formulations of this, especially in the 1790s. And you do actually get their voice. You know, you occasionally get them asked, what did you mean by that? And the response, some trial records are really brief, some are a bit fuller, um, but that was interesting for, for London and for Paris as well. Um, again, to try to find what people have said. So finding popular opinion is pretty difficult, to be honest. And um, in some ways, I think if you accept that working class voices, if we can put it that way, I, I don't like the term working class for the 18th century, but we'll put it that way. Um, if you accept that working class voices often don't get recorded, then obviously we're missing most of it. But from what the snapshots we can see, we can kind of build up popular pictures. Um, in some ways also, we can use riots, disorder, protest um, when they occur as well. Uh, but yeah, that, that was kind of my approach to public opinion, which is, I've got to be honest, quite unscientific, basically find whatever I could that people had said, done, sung. Um, what they were saying was interesting, also what they were not saying, what they were assuming. Um, which is, I think, uh, a really interesting one, because if they spell it out in an argument, obviously they're trying to persuade someone. If they assume that the reader understands it, we can say that that is part of latent public opinion, as I theorized it. Um, so a lot of filling in the gaps, actually, um, on my part, which I'm sure someone will destroy me for uh, at some point, but um, basically trying to grope towards this impression of what people, ordinary people, felt and thought. Yeah, um, there's a lot that I feel that it's nice to know that I wasn't the only one who kind of felt that I was just kind of wandering around in the dark trying to find stuff and then kind of working out what that stuff sort of said. Um, and I completely feel what you say about um, when it came to character. I'll tell you the thing that really frustrated me, the number of references to bum jokes, basically, in caricatures that just that was all the caricature was about. And uh, some of them were, were quite surprising. So there was one um, that really um, that really created a, a bit of a brouhaha um, where somebody was depicted um, passing wind, shall we say, in the face of the image of the king. And that was seen as hugely treasonous um, back then. So, you know, there are ways to use these things to get at uh, public opinion. But the number of times that I saw a Frenchman being prodded up the backside by a bayonet and just thought, well, you know, great, but that doesn't really tell me much about what people think about the war. You know, um, it's it's a frustrating, frustrating medium to work with. Um, I don't know if you had a, a similar experience there in terms of the dirty jokes seem to kind of predominate. And in that sense, it kind of feels like there's a, a strand of humour that hasn't really changed in... 200 plus years you know people see, still seem to get the bottom jokes yeah absolutely and, and national character kind of comes through in, uh, in these caricatures 
uh, I guess quite strongly through through the caricatured image of the person. So the Frenchman is normally emaciated, uh, quite foppish before the revolution after that, uh, normally kind of emaciated and um, looking quite malign. Uh, the Dutchman is always fat with a pipe and a hat and looking very self-satisfied, um, possibly a bit lethargic. Um, now there's these caricatures, but the, the, the bum jokes and the, the defecation jokes that they just go throughout this the the great one um british bumboats bombarding you know bumboats the the term for things that, that go out i think and um fly to and fro between ships um but this is a, an image of george the third as britain so it's the shape of britain but with george the third's face just defecating all over france with little boats coming out and hitting france and you, you can't mistake the message in that um I mean, obviously, someone has to understand maps maybe to get it. They've got to have seen the king's face, but the message is pretty clear. As you said, it doesn't tell us much about popular attitude. It tells us about the attitude of the writer, um, but it tells us what people do understand, and what they understand is scatological humor, um, bum jokes, uh, and you know how to insult foreigners, quite frankly. Yeah, I mean, there's a whole thing there about xenophobia, nationalism, which we will, folks, get into. Um, the one thing that I would say is that this is part of the reason why I find studying the army during this period so rewarding, because you have this challenge of trying to get access to what the rank and file, well, sorry, what, okay, working class doesn't really work, but we'll go with it because you know, we, we need a better term, um, what the working class are, are saying. And actually, when it comes to the army during this period, rank and file material is so much richer than previous conflicts that actually that's a... Uh, a way that you can start to understand what the working class is starting to to at least do in terms of self-expression and yes you've got to be careful about the fact that they're written for a particular audience and so on and so forth which is why i prefer letters but nonetheless um it is one way of solving these things i'm just going to throw a, a question that's completely selfish um out there because i would love to know your thoughts on this newspapers are they written, and this is this was the big question for my master's thesis that I could never get to the bottom of, uh, are they written because people want to read a particular perspective, or are they written in order to impress on the public a particular expect perspective, or are they written with both in mind at the same and different times? What are your thoughts? I think definitely the latter, that it's, it's both at the same time because um, some newspapers are, are what they call subsidized by the ministry, as you know. Um, it's basically paid by the government to say nice things, but the people who read them want to hear nice things about the government. They're fundamentally loyalist. They want to hear that things are going well. They want to hear the country is doing well. And so they quite like the echo chamber that they're put into when they buy that newspaper. So it's both being paid by the government to put out this stuff, uh, but also there's a receptive audience who wants to hear nice things same in opposition uh, you know some people want to hear that there's a more radical perspective or uh, that the government is not doing good things um, and therefore they, they put the stories out it pleases the readership but also the people writing it genuinely do believe this and want to get a message across um, I, I guess it's kind of similar to modern newspapers in that as well um, you know we, we read the papers and we, we look at the things on twitter and we look at the social media that we want to see um, you know you look at opposing opinions occasionally, but after a while they get annoying. So you stop looking at them. You look at the, the cat pictures and the, the dog pictures, the fun stuff, the stuff that you want to see. Um, and I think 18th century and 19th century newspapers kind of work in the same way. 
um, with the caveat maybe that a lot of subsidy secret service funds are siphoned off, handed to people to write the right stuff uh, and to tell people everything is going well uh, and to, to put the right messages in. Um, and of course, with, with plagiarism being absolutely endemic at the time, uh, you know, you will get literally word for word the same story in, in all the provincial papers. Um, it filters down into those pretty quickly as well. Uh, so anyone who, who takes their you know, provincial courier uh, over breakfast will be reading the same stuff that's come out in the, the Chronicle or the Times or whatever newspapers plagiarized. Uh, so the whole country gets this kind of similar message. Quite often word for word, literally verbatim, just, you know, we're going to copy what the Morning Post has written. And we're not going to say that it's come from the Morning Post, but we're just going to take the whole text and slap it in there and push it out. It's remarkable. The Morning Chronicle did get on my nerves sometimes for the way it was just so gleeful when things went badly. Um, I don't know if that's there's a, there's a nascent kind of loyalist in me during this period. That uh, I suppose that's my internal bias. But I read the Morning Chronicle and just went, come on, things really aren't going that bad in the grand scheme of things. Um, so clearly I needed to park my emotion as, as a, a master's student. But we, we shall move swiftly on, otherwise we will be here all day. Um, like I said at the start, determining public opinion in one country, that's a headache in itself. You know, you can spend three years on that and still barely scratch the surface. You did it for three countries and then tackled the knotty question of national identity. Um, and I'm not going to ask you if you were mad and hopelessly overambitious because I've read the book and it's wonderful. And people, we're going to talk more about the book and where you get it in a little while. Um, but talk us through why you wanted to do that, because that can be a route to descent into madness if you can't kind of build the parameters to preserve your sanity and kind of limit yourself and and channel yourself. So why did you feel that kind of calling to tackle Britain and France and the Netherlands simultaneously? And there's a degree of stupidity and youthful inexperience there. <laughs> I'll, uh, I'll go straight for that. Um, I mean, the, there was some naivety, I suppose, with everyone starting a PhD, you think you can do, you can change the world. And three years when you're in your early 20s seems like a huge length of time to do a project. And then suddenly two and a half years in, you realize it really isn't. Um, so, I mean, there was a, an element of that, but, but what I really wanted to do was um, was to get this idea of intercon interconnectivity. Um, you know, Britain and France in this period, everyone knows their rivalry, everyone knows their interconnectivity, everyone knows that they feed off each other, even though they're rivals. Um, but the Dutch are also looming there as well. Um, yeah, they're, they're Britain's closest ally for a century. They're Britain's closest connection with the continent, you know, possibly even closer than Hanover at times, uh, despite the fact Hanover has the same ruler. Um, and obviously for, for France, the Netherlands, uh, a key strategic area. And for 20 years of the period I was looking at, they, the French kind of dominated the Netherlands. So I, I wanted to kind of build this three-way story and actually to do a comparative and see how public opinion acts in different polities at different times, how it changes. So it was overambitious, um, but I thought the comparative would be useful. I, I also uh, had the advantage, I, I could already speak a, well, English to a reasonable degree, um, could speak French, and um, I'd just finished my master's in South Africa, so I spoke uh, enough Afrikaans that learning Dutch wasn't too much of a problem. Um, I say not too much of a problem, I can't speak Dutch. Um, my pronunciation is awful, um, and uh, apologies to... Uh, conference people whose surnames I also butchered um <laughs> okay so we've, we've got to explain that one so um 
<laughs> there's, there's a certain in joke going around um, because, as you may have heard, the War and Peace conference did go to hell in an express elevator because we lost the venue when Her Majesty died, um, which therefore meant that we all had to scramble to try and find a solution, which basically meant throwing everything online. Excuse me, whilst I play this world's smallest violin. However, in the process of that, the Twitter community absolutely responded. Um, and so as I was doing kind of opening gambits on the first day of the conference proper, um, I tried to pronounce one of the uh, surnames of a Dutch prolific, increasingly prolific Twitterer, um, who, whose name I'm still not sure I've, I've got to the bottom of, but I, it's Michael Schwiff, I think is the pronunciation. That's what I'm going with now. But apparently when I said it in the conference, I pronounced it Schulef. Um, to much deridement from everybody concerned, justified deridement, let's, let's be honest, because there's no L in there. I do not know what came out of my mouth in that moment in time. I'm going to use the excuse that I'd had four hours sleep. That's, that's the, 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 the wall that I'm going to hide behind. But yes, um, I am not in a position to uh, critique you when it comes to your Dutch pronunciation, so do not worry. Anyway, I interrupted you. Sorry, you carry on. So, uh, apologies for bringing back the uh, the trauma. Um, <laughs> sure, we'll be over it one day. Um, but it, so, I mean, my, my Dutch spoken, I, I've got to be honest, isn't up to much. But reading 18th century Dutch was was kind of easy enough to to get to, having you know learnt a bit of Afrikaans, learned, living over in South Africa for a couple of years. Um, so, the the language side of things kind of fell into place quite easily. So, I thought, you know, I'll, I'll tackle this project. I'll try to to deal with these three different countries. Uh, looking at their public opinion, uh, looking at their self-identity as well. Um, it, it looked great on the proposal. And then you know, six months in, I suddenly realized just what I'd done to myself. Um, the fact that I'd given myself a 30-year period where there are more changes in governments than there were hot dinners in a couple of the countries really didn't help. No, I can well imagine. Um, when I was starting to, to read the introduction of, of the book, I was thinking, how's he going to achieve all of this? It's 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 one of those projects where genuinely, if somebody came to me and said, so I'm thinking about doing this, I'd go, look, it's a fantastic project. Um, have you thought about how you're going to make it happen? But you did make it happen. That's the that's the thing that I want to kind of emphasize and congratulate you on that you pulled it off. Um, so kudos where it's due, because it's remarkable. So we'll start getting into the, the kind of the meat of it, I guess, at, at this stage. And start breaking this down and I want to go straight for the big one um the one that we could do a whole series of podcasts on uh, I don't think we will um because it's it's a descent into madness in and of itself national identity that's where I'm getting at with this very rambling question this is something that quite obviously folks is developing during this period this is not the national identity of the 20th century and certainly not the national identity of the 21st century. It is over the course of the 19th century that you see the development of patriotism and the rise of nationalism and with it concepts of national identity becoming much more embedded into kind of common parlance if you like and, and everyday culture. That doesn't mean that it's not emerging during this period. So I mean, what does this look like in Britain, first of all, especially right at the start? Because for a long time, we've been essentially debating the work of Linda Colley, right? Whose argument, for those who aren't familiar, is that 
basically over the course of the Napoleonic Wars and the, in fairness, the, the century prior to that, the, the way in which the British tend to measure themselves and what it means to be British ends up being as simple as just not being French. We, ju we just don't want to be French. Whatever the French are, whatever traits we're going to lumber the French with, founded or otherwise, we're going to not be them. Do you think she got it right? Because obviously it's a theory and there has been some discussion around it since. I'm thinking particularly of um, Cookson's work on this when looking at enlistments um, in the militia. So what's your take on it all? Is Collie kind of right? Uh, yeah, I think it's a, it's a really interesting one. Obviously, ideas of identity and national identity and even what nation means are developing over this period. Um, and for Britain, it is really interesting with Linda Colley. Um, now, she made this suggestion in the early 90s and then developed it in her book, Britons, in the, the kind of mid-90s, um, that basically British identity and, and the unity between English, Welsh and Scottish people and, and the different peoples within those countries even really comes from their opposition to an other, and the other being primarily French, Spanish, Catholic. Um, Spanish diminishing over the century, Catholic diminishing slightly, but French remaining there front and centre as the, the chief bugbear for Britain. Um, and she, her work is really interesting. It does show that not just the elites, but ordinary people really hold very strong anti-French and anti-Catholic views for much of the 18th century. Uh, and especially with wartime volunteering and things, um, they do seem to be you know, backing that up with, with numbers in terms of you know, fighting against France. Uh, but I mean, I suppose a key criticism of Collie, though, and, and she's been critiqued by many people, um, but a, a key one is that it maybe ignores some of the more positive tropes of Britishness that are developing. Um, Collie also talks about empire and how imperial service and military service is important for drawing people into Britishness. Um, but she maybe ignores some of the cultural traits some from, from consumption from empire even, um, but some of the cultural traits that make people seem British and make them begin to believe that they're British. Uh, you know, monarchy, shared laws, shared institutions, they can all help. Uh, the water is muddied by the fact, of course, Scotland has different institutions and different laws. Um, it doesn't have English liberties in the same way that apply to Scotland. Um, they have a similar, or the same currency after 1707. Um, but they still have pretty much all separate institutions internally. So the, those waters are muddied. And I think Collie is onto something with the othering. Um, you know, it's fundamentally impossible to define yourself without there being something else that you're not. Uh, otherwise, you're just universal. Um, but I think that it just being about anti-Frenchness is a little reductionist. And also, if you look at the cultural transfer between Britain and France, the upper classes, especially in peacetime, um, we see a huge amount of borrowing in Britain from France of fashions, etc. Um, it's interesting during the Napoleonic Wars that um, fashion changes. Um, I'm not a huge expert on fashion. I'm sure someone might shoot me down on this, but there are changes away from French styles of doing things. Uh, men's clothing becomes a lot more militaristic. Um, it kind of echoes military uniforms in some ways. Uh, and that, that's an expression of loyalty. But in peacetime, especially, uh, fashion often echoes what's going on in France. So there is that duality. British people do dislike France, the idea of France in wartime especially, but they also look up to it culturally. Um, so I think there's, there's more going on in British identity than, than 
Collie's thesis, but also I, I don't buy people that would completely dismiss Collie um, for the simple reason that I was once at a conference, the only thing that united all the scholars in the room was a disagreement with Collie. And I thought, well, you've just proved othering there. You have literally just proved the thesis you're against. Wow. Wow. Um, what I, I will say on Collie's work is that it's very striking when it comes to, I'm sorry, this is an, an army rabbit hole here, but it's still a, a portion of popular opinion. When things go wrong, the people that are reached for to blame is others. You know, it's not the fault of the hardy British member of the rank and file. It's the fault of the Portuguese who are lousy and scoundrels and, and lazy and dirty. And, and these are words that are used in memoirs. This is not me just throwing mud at the Portuguese people writ large. I'm not that much of a git. Um, same insults basically get thrown at the Spanish who are deemed too Catholic and, and backward in their nature. And, you know, when it, <laughs> I mean, there are contradictions here because when it comes to the Spanish ladies, that's a very different story. Um, but the people who have who the, the rank and file have the most respect for are the French because of their martial prowess. And because, as you say, of this kind of cross transfer between cultures, there's more that they can recognize in the French than there is in the Spanish and the Portuguese, who are deemed kind of too Catholic and too inverted commas behind the times. So whilst I, I do buy what colleagues says to a, a significant degree when it comes to look we're going to style ourselves as not what the French are and you know the Napoleonic Wars obviously plays a huge part within that because if you're going to unify a people to a common cause the fact that you've got this enemy across the channel is a godsend and we'll talk about that in just a sec but the flip side is that in terms of that othering there are other nations that the British are more inclined to heap scorn upon than the French when the when you know the the buck has to stop somewhere. Yeah, absolutely. Um, um, I mean, C Catholic South Europe especially comes in for it. Um, Italians, um, Spanish, Portuguese, uh, they come in for a lot of insults, but also that the Dutch, the Russians. Now, 1799 campaign, the Russians get blamed for that. The 1794, 95, well, 93, 94, 95 failures, the Dutch get blamed uh, in large part. Um, if you look at Waterloo memoirs, and I know you'll have looked at them. I'm sure many people listening will have looked at these as well. Um, when people talk about different nationalities, the King's German Legion, they're quite happy with. Other German troops, a bit of disparagement. The Dutch and Belgian troops, a lot of disparagement. The French fought like lions. The French were the bravest they'd ever seen. Um, the French were incredible. Now, the, these are, are, they're really complimentary about the French. Now, part of that is, of course, there's no point beating an enemy who is useless and weak and weedy. You want to build up your enemy to say, well, actually, we won. Um, but part of it also comes from a, a different respect, I think, for, for the French, for French soldiers. Um, the Peninsular War as well, it's really interesting that British officers got on very well with the French officers when they met individually. Um, so, yeah, I think that there is this othering, but also on the personal level, uh, you know, I, I think when British people encounter the French, they really quite like them. Yeah, I think that's a, a fair comment to make. Um, and the the conversations that happen between British officers and French officers, or even sometimes British rank and file and, and French rank and file, uh, are talked about in a positive sort of tone. There is that mutual respect, there seems. And there are exceptions to that. Of course there are. 
there will always be that but although the french are the enemy sometimes there's this sense that well they're our enemy but they're better than our allies on occasion um, and again you make a really good point about to what extent do they big up the french because look the french are great and yet we still beat them and to what extent does by extension that apply to the allies you know look we won despite the fact that our allies were useless because we're british and we're so much better and that leads me on to the the next kind of part of this which is this kind of what i've always thought as a sort of a propaganda godsend um, that is the napoleonic wars for britain in that when you have wellington's string of victories across the peninsula war okay it's a bit different when things are, are going wrong uh, but when you have victories where you've got highland gaelic uh, welsh and english regiments standing shoulder to shoulder you can use that to show look we came together as a nation to defeat one of the greatest military forces the world has ever seen certainly that we've seen in recent times so look how much better we are united um, and I, again apologies kind of drawing on what i've seen in this the caricatures kind of really build on that uh, in my experience so what's your kind of read about how this can be used to kind of keep the spin going and how does this conflict basically morph those perceptions even further into what kind of falls out of the napoleonic wars yeah, th th there is definitely that element of, of propaganda around this, of um, it being something the government can use to say, look at the loyalty and loyalism uh, of the north of Scotland, of, of Ireland, um, of the Welsh, although Welsh loyalty is, is not really questioned in the same way as, as maybe the other two were in the 18th century. Um, but it is something of a propaganda gift, like you say, caricature especially, because there's the visual representations of the four nations, there are certain uh, visual cues that caricaturists can put in that anyone looking at it in the 18th century would understand that represents Scotland, that's Ireland, that's Wales, that's England, and they stand together, they're stronger together. Um, you do get it in, in some writing as well, but I, I also think the government doesn't actually play on it um, to the extent they might have done, say, in the, the 20th century. Um, propaganda isn't that advanced, they're not trying to spread the message in quite the same way. Uh, what they do talk about it, you know, there's, there's a degree to which they're um, they want to, to generate some pride in this, um, but they don't maybe push it too far. Um, it does fit into Collier's thesis again, though, with this idea that uh, through you know, a common enemy and fighting in a common cause, you do all come together. And it is certainly true that uh, state service gives, for example, Irish Catholics uh, much more of a stake in Britain than they would have done uh, if they were simply at home, subject to still quite... Uh, discriminatory laws. Um, there's an argument that the Highlands after 1745 had kind of been partly rehabilitated uh, through state service as well, and that continues um, to be a locus for pride. Um, but what we also do see is kind of local pride in this. Um, you know, when the Scots Greys charge at Waterloo and the 92nd jump on them and grab the stirrups, uh, which I mean, my theory is they're trying not to get crushed by the horses, to be honest, it's it's not enthusiasm. Uh, but still, there, there are these tales that quite a few people say of them shouting Scotland forever, not Britain forever or North Britain forever, but Scotland forever. Um, so while fighting alongside countrymen from Ireland, Wales, uh, England, um, gives a sense of Britishness, maybe there is still this pride of Scottishness uh, that we see even right at the end of the wars. Um, so I, I, I don't 
while I do think the walls create a, a sense of unity, I don't think they override the the local identities, if you will, or, or you know, four nations identities uh, that we still see. Yeah, that's a really good point. I mean, the other kind of counterpoints to what I've said, I guess, as I'm kind of thinking this through a uh, martial race theory and the positives and negatives that get latched onto those um, theories. So, for example, Highlands Warriors, you know, sturdy as you like, and um, they then try and transplant that onto other um, other ethnic groups. But when it comes to the Catholics, yes, hardy, great in a fight, but drunken rabble can't control them. Um, all the, all of the, the kind of the stereotypes that, to an extent, British people still fling at the Irish today. You know, scrappy, um, like to drink too much. Uh, apologies to my Irish listeners. I am not saying that you are all drunken layabouts who are just rolling around in the streets when the pubs close on a Friday night. That is not what I'm saying. Nonetheless. That's the kind of trope that gets attached to the Irish people during this period when it comes to their their martial qualities. Um, so in one sense, yes, it does bring people together, but it also kind of serves as a way of dis defining people and kind of splitting them and, and categorizing them, which creates a whole kind of raft of problems in and of itself. So we talk Britain. You've got three nations to cover here. Um, let's move on to France at this stage. How fragmented is the concept of what it means to be French, I guess is my first question here, because the lack of distinct nations within a nation, as you have in the case of Britain, obviously, shouldn't necessarily fool us into thinking that the French were unified in what their supposed national traits are and what the French people writ large want. And I'm thinking particularly here, you've got a series of uprisings and rifts over the, the if you like, the, the monarchists versus the republicans that really kind of demonstrate that France is not kind of unified as we see ourselves as a people ruled by a king or we see ourselves as a people ruled by a republic and a, a different set of ideals. So kind of help us unpick that. How, I mean, are, are those fragmentations more obvious because these are political rifts or is there actually quite a kind of dislocated sense of what Frenchness is? So France is a, a really interesting one because much more than Britain or, or even the Netherlands I suppose there is a very conscious concerted effort to persuade people in this period that they are French. So when the, the French Revolution breaks out France doesn't have different nations but does have different provinces with completely different legal codes, legal systems, um, different taxes so your legal status in life would depend on where you're born which province which town um, and that's swept away with the revolution which then says okay you're all universally uh, liable to the same laws you're all equal before the law um, which is all well and good but then persuading people that they are actually equal and they are one country takes a lot more so when they in the 1790s put in place systems of national education what they mean is not educating all the people to read and write. What they mean is educating them in the ways of the nation, teaching them to be French. Um, and so all people were meant to be taught to be French. I mean, it, it doesn't really happen in practice, but the French language is imposed on all provinces. It's the, the only language of administration. Um, there are uniform legal codes. There's a civil code. Um, Napoleon, of course, codifies these properly, but the revolution before that had said there will be uniform taxation and laws um, there's a duty of service every person 
owes service to the nation. Every man owes military service, but every person owes service. So there's a real attempt to create the sense of Frenchness. But as you say, while the provincial um, kind of loyalties and, and identities are being subsumed into this idea of Frenchness, or an attempt is being made to it uh, to do that, um, at the same time, we, we get massive political rifts, largely over whether you're going to be a monarchy, a constitutional monarchy, what type of constitutional monarchy, then a republic, then what type of republic. And then Napoleon comes in and basically everyone by that stage is so exhausted by strife and bloodshed, they're quite happy to accept a man who's a bit more of a dictator in exchange for some stability. And then he becomes the best of all worlds. Um, no, he, until about 1806, he calls himself the emperor of the French Republic. Uh, he, he keeps this Republican idea. Then, you know, he starts saying emperor and king. Well, he's king of Italy, but what's he really king of? Is he, is he kind of using this term to get the monarchists on side? Quite possibly it's Napoleon. He is, he's, he's that kind of guy. Um, but he's offering them a, a picture of the gains of the revolution, plus stability, plus a figurehead, plus glory, quite frankly, you know, military glory, um, which rallies French people around to an extent. And those who don't rally around are marginalized, uh, sometimes persecuted. Uh, I mean, it, it's often ignored. Napoleon imposes martial law when he comes into power in about 30 departments. Uh, and that martial law probably kills about as many people as the terror did over a, a two-year period. Uh, most are counted as brigands or deserters or runaways or, or you know, there's some kind of disorder. It's not just political opponents, but plenty of political opponents do find themselves on the wrong side of Napoleon. Um, various ones who are you know, found dead in unusual circumstances, some who are just outright executed. Um, so I think when Napoleon comes in, that political fragmentation is pushed down a bit again. So we've got a situation there where the provinces have been told that they are now French. You've got uniform codes, uh, currencies, taxes, everything is the same, universal conscription. Um, with, with the exception maybe of the Vendée, which is exempt for a few years. Um, and then you've got uh, this sense of the same ruler over all of you, which you can all accept. No one maybe would choose that system as their first choice, but they can all accept it. It's better than the alternative. So in that case, you are getting a sense of, of an impression of unity in France. Um, and that is helped by administration, um, basically being imposed on the departments in a major way. I'd also argue that conscription helps in this. Um, uh, I've given a, a recent paper on this. I've, I might try to work it up into an article. But basically, there's an idea that uh, through conscription, everyone is brought into being French. Well, I would say through avoiding conscription, people are as well, because to avoid conscription, and a third of men do for various reasons, to avoid it, you have to appeal to the administrators. You have to do it in French, in the language of the state appealing to the correct people in the administration, you basically have to accept what this new regime is, what this new order is, what this new culture is, and you have to accept that the state has the right, one, to conscript you, but then two, to exempt you. So all of that, I think, is starting to build up in people's minds in France by 1815, that there is this thing that is France, that they are part of France, and that they have duties to the state. Um, I think the 19th century then has a very painful birth of actual French identity, um, you know, it goes between monarchies, republics, the third, uh, the sorry, Napoleon the third, the Second Empire, um, more republics. Uh, you know, th there is huge strife in France over the 19th century to create this idea of Frenchness and to carry on building it. But certainly by 1815 and and through the the Napoleonic period, 
we're seeing the idea of Frenchness being born and imposed on the French people, uh, what we would now consider the French people at least. Yeah, I mean, the, the big challenge for the French is that, you know, you back Napoleon and then it all goes wrong and you wind the clock back to a degree, certainly in terms of um, leadership style when you have the, the reinstitution of the monarchy. And so the French kind of have this struggle of coming to terms with what happens um, and this sense of, well, we had a guy who built the French empire and, and kind of flew the flag, if you like, for France in a way that we haven't seen since, let's say, Charlemagne. But then it all goes horribly wrong. And how do you come to terms with that? And where do the French people slot into that story of both success, but then also subsequently failure? So it, as you say, it becomes hugely challenging for them to work out how they define themselves. And then on top of that, you've got this transition from monarchy to, well, from emperor to uh, <laughs> To, to monarchy through to democracy then back to dictator and and yeah it's it's messy um that's not a particularly astute commentary on um, french politics during this period but it's it's hugely complex what you talk about how in 1815 there's a growing sense of what france might be is that fundamentally what napoleon sees France as? Is that the the concept that gets kind of transplanted across or does it have its own sort of unique flavour? Does the Napoleonic vision get sort of manipulated and turned into something that's not quite what Napoleon sought but nonetheless is a reality? Yeah I mean it certainly evolves after 1815 I, I think. Um, I mean Napoleon had this idea of France that would have his, his masses of granite, his, his middle classes, his, his wealthy propertied elites um, basically helping to rule the, the states in his behalf and that obviously continues into the monarchy and then um, into the July monarchy and certainly into you know just about every iteration of France through the 19th century. Um, the idea of um, a kind of a, a country that is Catholic but is not purely Catholic that continues a degree of religious toleration. Um, obviously then the republics have a, a different relationship with the church but uh, that manages to continue on. Um, the Napoleonic ideas of of justice, of uh, there being uniform justice, and Napoleon, <clears throat> for all his faults, actually does believe that everyone should be liable to the same laws. He believes in equality before the law. Now, those laws might be deeply unequal and deeply unfair. The laws might favour some people, but everyone is equal before those laws. Uh, he doesn't believe in privilege in, in the kind of ancien regime sense, and that continues. Um, I'm sure Louis XVIII might have wanted to get rid of that and reintroduce privilege. Charles X certainly did. Um, but Napoleon's legacy continues there. So I think a lot of what happens in France after 1815 is shaped by Napoleon, but they also move beyond him. Um, I think there's also a, a slight fear, concern about dictatorship in France that uh, maybe other countries don't have because of their experience of Napoleon. Um, you know, the huge positivity with which he's met in well, 1799 to 1803, really. Um, and even 1804, Declaration of Empire, very popular. But then from about 1807, especially when he, he stops bothering with elections, gets rid of the tribunate, etc., um, he becomes a bit less popular as a ruler. Um, I think people are a bit concerned about dictatorship after that. So that, that kind of feeds into a at least a political psyche, if not a national psyche. But a lot of this does come from Napoleon. The only 
other thing though that kind of muddies the water well two things that muddy the water with napoleon first of all he's not actually french um he's of course he's corsican by birth um you know he, he's conceived as a genoese citizen he's born as a frenchman by accident um until he's 20 he's a, or in his 20s he's a corsican nationalist um he only ceases to be that because he's booted out of corsica in 1793 uh, by Pauli and his supporters um he goes off to Toulon and then throws his lot in with the French because he, he doesn't really have a choice. I've got to be honest. His whole family has to flee. His house is stormed and, and ripped to pieces. Um, and, and so as a, a man who is only kind of peripherally French, he never really tries to impose a single Frenchness. He's not a kind of French cultural supremacist in any way. And then when we see his empire, Obviously, the core of it is France, but also there are people who are clearly not French. There are Belgians, Italians, Germans, Croatians, Spaniards, all in this thing that is the French Empire. Um, and he does try to impose things on them. You know, there's Dutch people after 1810 in his empire. He does try to impose on them uh, the Code Napoleon. Uh, he tries to impose um, taxes, currencies, etc. Um, but he's very careful about things like language and local cultures. Um, he is quite happy for different parts of his empire to to retain some degree of local culture and even local language and administration um, for the simple reason that it's pragmatic to do so. Um, he doesn't see the need to impose Frenchness. He does see the need to impose the, the Napoleonic Code, but he also even tries to impose that on countries that aren't French. You know, the, the Kingdom of the Netherlands, or the Kingdom of Holland, sorry, um, Westphalia, Naples, Spain, he tells them all to adopt the Napoleonic Code. This is something in his mind that's universal. Um, and in that way, Napoleon isn't just spreading Frenchness. He's spreading what he sees as a more universal way of doing things, I suppose. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. What folks won't have been able to see, because this is the only thing that I sometimes mull over and, and dislike about this being a radio show is that I was gesticulating wildly. I don't know how you kept your concentration, actually, as I'm kind of pointing at the camera and, and um, just generally emphatically agreeing with what you were saying there. That I mean, I would, and I'm not putting words in your mouth, these are my words here, I would say that Napoleon is French when it suits him. Um, Absolutely. And... Yeah. and up until the point where he gets slapped in the face by the Corsican nationalist movement uh, and that drive for an independent Corsica, he's not French. He's sure he's taken the benefits of the French um, system that allow him to get that military education, but he's not throwing his lot in with the French until 
there's no other option. And then he becomes French. And you see that the whole way through the rest of his life. You know, his French is always spoken with a very thick kind of Corsican Italian style accent. Um, he famously, um, on one occasion, passes for an Italian um, whilst uh, interrogating some hapless soldier during the Italian campaigns. And you know, they're, they're conversing in uh, a common dialect and the guy doesn't realize that he's talking to a French general and Napoleon mines the guy for information. Um, now, obviously on one sense, that's hugely clever and all the rest of it. And yes, he preys on him if you really want to, but it's a demonstration of the fact that no, Napoleon's not French, not properly, proper, obviously a problematic term, but not properly inverted commas French. It's the reason he was bullied at school, for heaven's sake. He wasn't French enough. Um, so it's a uh, my French listeners, not that there are vast numbers of them, but they will have potentially have turned off in disgust at this point. Um, so apologies for that. Um, but yeah, it's, it's a really important point. And it's a really interesting point that you've got this guy who, in one sense, you can build a, a, a sense of nation around. And yet this isn't a kind of as you say not a guy conceived as a frenchman he's conceived as a genoese individual so it's 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 a mess yeah, um, a, i think it also makes his, his interaction with frenchness is less emotional maybe than someone who who was born in france and, and that was their only culture i think he uses frenchness and he uses an idea of identity when it suits him um but he doesn't have that emotional attachment in the same way maybe uh, and that detachment maybe allows him to be a bit more cynical in things like you know calling people for service for the nation and things like that um but i, I agree entirely he's french when it suits him uh, and it suits him after 1793 to be french because he's got nowhere else to go what i love is that you're taking my ramblings and then actually putting intelligent thoughts on top of them as opposed to me just waffling on aimlessly this is good because you're doing my job for me so thank you for that um I'm, I've got one eye on the time and I'm conscious that you're a hugely busy individual and we're not even halfway through this interview. Um, so I suppose we have to, to move it on and talk about the Netherlands. Not that I'm reluctant to talk about the Netherlands, it's just that there's more that we could talk about when it comes to the French side of things. So the Netherlands, this is a curious one because their national leader gets removed and then a Bonapartist puppet gets installed in their place. So how does that affect how the Dutch construe themselves? Oh, well, I and mean, you said that France and Britain were both a bit messed up. I mean, the, the Dutch are very much now saying, hold my beer. Um, <laughs> the, the Netherlands is, um, is, is an absolute mess um, all the way through. So the, the Dutch Republic um, before 1795 um, is, is a country, but it's not really. Um, 1579, the, the Union of Utrecht, the seven provinces decide to get together because they're all in revolt against Spain and it's safer to do it all together. It's safer to be a union. So they create this union, which is the Dutch Republic, which I think it was Herbert Rowan that said uh, it's an improvisation that lasts two centuries. Um, now, each of those provinces is sovereign. They are sovereign in their own province. They have their own provincial estates. They run themselves as they want. They do whatever they want. The collective is run by the States General, which runs their kind of collective conquests, some of the colonies, um, but it doesn't have any actual power over the provinces. The, the States General can't tell the provinces what to do. Each province has its own army. Each province has its own navy. They put them together in wartime, but they're all paid for by their own province. So 
in the 1780s, when there's a bit of a revolution, three or four of the provinces decide to withdraw their army from the Prince of Orange. Two or three others decide to build up a bigger army on his behalf. I mean, civil war could have ensued. Um, at one point, the British actually hand over money. So one regiment leaves one province and goes to another one because it will pay them more. Um, and that just depends on, on who commands them. So it's a mess of a country. Obviously, being a mess, being wartime, you can't have that. So they appoint someone in charge. And that person is the stadholder, the Prince of Orange. Uh, just to, to add an extra level of confusion, he is Prince of Orange. Orange is in France. So he's a technically a prince with a French title ruling the Dutch. He's German by birth. Um, so you can see where this is going. Um, but the Princes of Orange become the stadholders by tradition. Now, each province individually appoints their own stadholder, and the one who is appointed by them all is the, the collective one. And that's the case through pretty much to the late or to, to the mid 18th century. Um, and the stadholder is not the sovereign ruler. Like I said, the provinces are sovereign. Um, the provincial states are sovereign. Um, it's a republic. Uh, but he is kind of the chief magistrate. He's someone that people look up to. Actually, twice during this period, from 1650 to 1702 and 1702 to 1747, they get rid of the stadholder entirely. They decide to get rid of the position and just run as a republic. Um, but then from 1747, in response to a French invasion, uh, they recall the House of Orange and say, you know, we need someone to lead us. Can you be the man? And uh, William IV says, well, I'd love to, but we can't have this system where you might abolish me. So we're going to make this hereditary. And the, the Dutch agree to this. William IV comes in, wins or helps them win the war. The stadtholder is hereditary. But the stadtholder remains not the head of state as such. Um, he is, is more kind of a, the chief magistrate, an overseeing prince. Uh, he does have a princely court. He has a princely title. Um, but he's not a monarch in the same way. And then the, William IV goes and dies in 1751, leaving his, his young son to be stadtholder. He's too young. So his mother, who is British, um, basically rules on, on his behalf, cementing the links between Britain and the Netherlands. Let's fast forward to the 1780s. William V ruling on his own, uh, but ruling very pro-British. Uh, you know, he wants to keep this British connection going. Uh, a lot of people aren't too keen on this, especially as the Netherlands and Britain happened to be at war from 1780 to 1784 against the will of William V, it has to be said. Uh, the war doesn't go well. He's blamed for it uh, as he's commander in chief. Um, and uh, a revolution basically breaks out in the Netherlands. It's a very slow burning revolution, the Patriots. Uh, but what we've got here um, are people basically saying we don't need the stadholder. What we should have is a pure republic. Um, they're kind of in the mold of what the French will be later, but a bit less extreme, maybe, and also rooted much more in Dutch history of republicanism. Um, but basically, this into this mess, we've then got the Revolutionary Wars. Now, that, that mess of the revolution in the Netherlands is solved in 1787 by the simple expedient of Prussia invading the Netherlands, crushing the Patriots, putting the Prince of Orange back in his full powers, because the Prince of Orange happens to be married to the sister of the King of Prussia. Um, friends in right places, etc. So this problem is solved. But then we've got William the, the fifth as the ruler-ish of the Netherlands, but not really because the state's general is in charge. And then the Revolutionary War comes around. 1795, he is kicked out. Uh, Fran uh, the French army's overrun the Netherlands. Uh, and it seems that, you know, 
the, the, the Dutch had been conquered. But those people who'd been revolting in the 1780s, just before the French arrive, rise up in most cities and towns of the Netherlands and say, actually, we're on your side, France. We want to get rid of the stadtholder as well. This is a liberation, not a conquest. And the French run with it and say, OK, if you want to think you're liberated, not conquered, that's absolutely fine. As long as you pay the 100 million guilder indemnity that we want, we don't care. Uh, but we get this idea, actually, then, that the Netherlands um, is still a free country. Um, it's been you know, conquered, overrun by the French armies, but they were liberators, not conquerors. Um, and the, the Dutch really, really uh, run with that idea and, and insist for years that they are fully independent, fully sovereign, that the French troops who are there are just there to help and to stop a British invasion again. Um, so it, it, obviously they're um, maybe deluding themselves, um, especially 1798, the French decide the Dutch are being a bit slow with their creating a constitution. So they basically have a coup, overthrow the Dutch government and put in ones that they like, uh, which kind of shows just how much influence France has. Um, but what the, the Dutch are telling themselves after 1795 is that they are still independent and that their traditions are being respected, that they didn't need this stadtholder anyway. But let's complicate things. About half of the Dutch population don't agree with that. Half of them are Orangists. They support the House of Orange. They support the stadtholder. They support this idea of the old way of doing things in the Netherlands before the French arrived. So by 1806, when Napoleon steps in, euthanizes the Batavian Republic and tells the Dutch basically to invite his brother to be king. Um, you know, the, the anecdote of, of how he does this is, is quite Napoleonic. Uh, he basically summons some Dutch representatives to Paris and says, your country's not doing very well. And they say, well, it seems fine to us, thanks. And he says, no, no, it's not doing very well. And I think you need to change your government. And I think you should have one person in charge, a king, and I've got just the man for the job, my brother Louis. Would you like to invite him to be king? And they say, well, not necessarily. And he says, well, would you like my army to go in and make sure that he can be king? And they say, well, definitely not. So here's the invitation. Um, so they are basically forced into inviting him to be monarch of their country. Um, and at that stage, you've got this half of revolution, the revolutionary half, who um, they, they believed for 11 years that they were independent. Okay, they'd seen Napoleon increasingly putting uh, duties on them, demands on them, but they thought they were independent. And then you've got the half of the country who are Orangists who want to go back to the old system. And none of them want this new French guy to come in. And I think there would have been maybe more resistance, except when Louis comes in, and Napoleon says to Louis before he leaves Paris, you're a French prince. You're going to rule this as a Frenchman, as my brother. Don't ever forget your French and that you're a Frenchman. Uh, the first thing Louis does, he steps over the border and says, I'm now Dutch. I will always rule as a Dutchman. Uh, I am not French anymore. Um, and that sets the tone for his rule. He tries to rule on behalf of the Netherlands. And these Dutch people who were ready to kind of you know, quit en masse and, and want nothing to do with this thing, all think, actually, this guy's not as bad as he could be. He's better than what we thought we'd get. Um, and being Napoleon's brother, we might get away with a bit more. You know, if he can persuade Napoleon not to be quite as exacting with demands for the navy and the army and taxes. Um, so once you get to 1806 and Louis comes in, you actually get Dutch people rallying around Louis simply because he's not as bad as it could be. Um, 
So that's a very, very long-winded answer to the question, but the, the Dutch situation is a bit messy. Um, the people's identities before the 1780s are as much provincial as they are national. Um, we get senses of national identity, some of them rallying around the idea of a republic, some rallying around the idea of the House of Orange. And then when Napoleon replaces all that with Louis, um, I think people are just kind of relieved that it's not worse. Um, I mean, it gets worse, but they're relieved for a while. <laughs> There's an ominous comment right there. It gets worse. <laughs> um, you, you don't say. Um, there's a whole there's a whole sequence of wars that's still going to play out um, from, from that point onwards. But yeah, I mean, firstly, people wonder why I have an issue with Napoleon. There's a prime example. Look, it's not just Spain and Portugal. It's his modus operandi. It's what he does. I think you should do it this way. You don't like my thoughts that, you know, I should dictate what you, an independent nation, should do. Tell you what, why don't you go and have a chat with my grenadiers of the Imperial Guard and see what they're going to do to your country if I send them across the board. Oh, you've changed your mind. Well, that was a smart idea, wasn't it? And for all that I'm being hugely facetious, actually the underlying sentiment of that is absolutely what he's getting at. And yes, ballsy move. You can respect the gall of the guy, the arrogance, the just the sheer belief and the knowledge that if he goes to war, it's probably going to go his way. So he can play these cards. That's great. That doesn't necessarily mean it's the morally right thing to do. Yeah, I mean, okay? he, he, does, he does this with the Dutch term. And again, even when he's just come into power, um, the, the Dutch are being asked to pay for some French troops. Uh, 25,000 French troops stationed in the Netherlands by the Treaty of The Hague, they've got to pay for them during wartime. Then, of course, peace happens. So at the Peace of Amiens, the Dutch say, well, could you please remove your troops? And Napoleon says, no, no, they, they're there for your security. And they say, well, we're at peace. But, you know, we won't argue. So, well, we're not going to pay them because, you know, we, we were going to pay them while they were protecting us during wartime. We're not paying them in peacetime. And Napoleon just responds by saying, do you really want unpaid troops in your country? Because I'm not paying them. And the Dutch are left with a choice, basically, of 25,000 angry French troops rampaging, stealing what they want, or having to continue to pay them, despite it being totally against the treaty that they'd signed in 1795. And Napoleon just does this. Like you say, it's his modus operandi. It's the, the way he does stuff. Uh, might is very much right for Napoleon. Um, it's one rule for everyone else, and then a completely different rule that he whimsically changes as well, let's be honest, for Napoleon. Um, so interesting chap, Napoleon, and his, his dealings with the Netherlands um, are pretty one-sided, let's be honest. Steam is coming out of my ears. Um, time and again, he does this, and oh, we need to move on. We do. We do need to move on. But um, yeah, it's funny. My, I'm no expert on Dutch history in the slightest, so thank you for that run-through. But it was my sense that Louis was kind of better than expected um and and did a decent job and you know one of the one of the bonapartists that you know doesn't seem to have been well actually let's probe that whilst you know we've got an expert on on dutch history in the room is that a fair assessment that he's just better at the job um or is this more a case that the Dutch people are kind of willing to work with him as a least worst solution, or, or is it, you know, as is quite often the case, actually a bit of both, you know, he's, he's got that inclination to be pragmatic and diplomatic and work within the situation he's got to deal with, because, you know, this gets thrust upon him. Um, but then also you've kind of got that goodwill and, and some talent and, and it all comes together in quite a fortuitous way. 
Louis is an interesting personality. I think he, he's one of the people we'd make put down in history as, as a weak personality. He's easily led. He's easily persuaded to do stuff, but he's got that streak of stubbornness that people who are accused of being weak often have. Louis XVI is the same. People say, you know, he was a weak king, but he was exceptionally stubborn on some things that basically led to his downfall. Louis is the same in, uh, in Holland. Um, he's weak in that when he goes to the Netherlands, uh, his Dutch advisors can persuade him of a huge amount of stuff that he then tries to impose uh, or then implements or tells Napoleon he can't do because the Dutch won't have it. Um, but he's also strong enough to stand up to his brother. You know, he, he writes to Napoleon and says, you're wrong about stuff. Napoleon then sends very insulting messages back. Um, you know, this is stuff that would be probably a declaration of war territory if they hadn't been brothers. It's really insulting. Um, but Louis does stand up to Napoleon on behalf of the Dutch. Part of that is because he's easily led by his advisors. They tell him, oh, we couldn't possibly do something. You know, conscription won't work in our country. It simply won't. We can't do it. So he doesn't impose it. The Code Napoleon, they say, won't work in the Netherlands. doesn't go with Dutch culture. So he doesn't impose it. Um, and in that way, you know, he is seen as weak sometimes, doing what people want. But he doesn't do what Napoleon wants, which is for the, the Dutch, the main thing. Um, Louis also absolutely turns a blind eye to trade with Britain. Um, you know, when he comes in, he does have every intention of, of ruling on behalf of France, essentially, of doing what's right for France. Then the Dutch say, well, we can't survive as a country without British trade. Uh, and so Louis says, well, you know, we're going to have laws against this. We can't have trade with Britain. It's absolutely outlawed. But I'm not going to pay for any customs officers to patrol the beaches. We're not going to put any uh, soldiers there to do it. So it's banned. Don't do it, but you know I won't know if you do. So, in that way, he's very pragmatic about stuff as well. Um, but that, of course, infuriates Napoleon. Napoleon's big thing is, of course, you know, he wants to shut down all British trade, and he is furious that Louis refuses to do it, uh, and not just refuses to do it, but openly, you know, lets his subjects get away with this knowingly. Um, and Louis, at times, you know, then then has a crackdown here and there, and does bits and pieces to try to placate Napoleon. Um, but basically, Louis is trying to rule on behalf of the Dutch. Napoleon does not want someone to rule on behalf of the Dutch. He wants someone as, um, was it Murat who said, an advance guard king, uh, you know, someone who's, who's there as a king on Napoleon's behalf to do what he wants, to take orders, um, to simply implement Napoleonic policies in a way that's palatable to the locals. Um, Louis doesn't do that, uh, which, of course, gets him overthrown four years later. Um, Napoleon, after Volcarin especially, Napoleon decides Louis is quite inept. Um, he tries to make Louis abdicate by annexing part of the Netherlands or part of the Kingdom of Holland because uh, he thinks it will embarrass Louis into abdicating. It doesn't. Um, Napoleon then actually says to Louis, you've got to abdicate. And, and Louis goes so far as to say, what are you going to do if I don't? Um, to which you can, you can imagine Napoleon's response to that. And it was, well, I will invade. I'm going to invade you and overthrow you or you can just abdicate, at which point Louis throws the toys out the pram, abdicates, and then refuses to come back to France uh, and storms off. And Napoleon doesn't even know where he is for a while. Um, no, Louis really, really does not like Napoleon after this, as you can imagine. Um, and Louis, uh, in fairness to him, even in later life, he thinks of himself as, as having a huge interest in, in the Dutch. He wants them to be happy. He wants the country to do well. Um, you know, he, he kind of thinks that he might be brought back as ruler in 1814, um, which is, is quick, very quickly squashed as an idea. Um, but here's a man even into the 1820s who's saying, 
know, I want the Netherlands to do well. I wish this country well. And I think he genuinely had an affection for, for the country and the people. Um, he hated the climate. He thought it was too damp, too low lying. Uh, it was bad for his, his illnesses, etc. He hated the climate. His son also died there. Um, I think one, one of his sons died, which um, obviously, you know, was a, a major blow personally to him. Um, but, you know, he, he's a man who tried to rule on behalf of the Dutch. And I, I always feel sorry for Louis. I've got to be honest. He's, uh, he's the younger brother of a man who is overbearing, who has pushed him into a position he, he shouldn't be in, who tries to do his best, who has no idea what his best is. But he tries. And, uh, yeah, I do feel a bit sorry for Louis. There are echoes of Bernadotte here, aren't there? And I'm thinking about the next episode that's coming out as well, where we will tackle the Bernadotte question um, in our, what I'm going to label our monthly Marshall Mayhem, because that one is going to be mayhem, because everybody loves to hate Bernadotte, for basically doing a job properly and as ruler looking after or attempting to look after the interests of the people that you've been placed over. And then Napoleon's surprised when those interests don't necessarily align with his own. But I suppose I should stop bashing Napoleon and actually get onto the topic of what we're here to discuss. So that huge mess of a situation, how does that kind of feed through into how the Dutch sort of want to define themselves, I guess, and, and what is public opinion saying as this kind of ebbs and flows backwards and forwards? So the, the Dutch situation with public opinion is, is kind of similar, I suppose, to, to Britain in that we, we tend to see an oligarchy who rule, uh, who are a parliamentary class in Britain, um, a regent class maybe in the Netherlands before 1795. Um, but after that basically translates into a ruling class of, you know, maybe 10 to 20% of the population who, who are the ones who express most opinion. And that's where most of our records come from. Uh, in the Netherlands, we do have popular disorder. We have some um, records of especially popular loyalism to, to the House of Orange, et cetera, uh, that come out. But when we're talking about public opinion on an everyday level, um, you know the the general response of opinion to what's going on it, it's a, it's normally elite that we're we're discussing um and that opinion is actually pretty anti-war um throughout the period they don't want to go to war with france in 1793 they don't want to carry on a war after 1795 with britain they desperately do not want to go to war with britain in 1803 um and they actually ask napoleon to allow them to be neutral and they ask napoleon to allow them to make peace with britain uh, and Britain, uh, on its part, actually, until um, the end of June, is hoping that the Netherlands will be allowed to remain neutral in 1783, um, sorry, 1803. Um, so, you know, this this is six weeks after the declaration of war. Britain is is hoping that the Netherlands might be allowed to to sit this one out. Um, so the Dutch public opinion is is pretty much that they want to remain neutral in these things. So they're not interested in, in what Britain and France are doing. They want to sort their own country out. Um, they want to sort it out financially. They want to recover from years of war and neglect. Um, they want to work out what they're doing with their government. Um, you know, they, they want to be left alone, I think. In terms of a self-identity, a lot kind of does change in this period. Um, Dutch identity before this, insofar as there was a national identity, which is, as we said before, problematic, um, revolves around ideas such as Protestantism, it being a, a mercantile and, and commercial country, industrious, um, hard-working, um, 
Calvinist Protestantism kind of underpins a lot of this as well. Um, when we get through the revolutionary years, that Protestantism falls away to an extent, at least at state level, but as a, a kind of personal identity to a lot of people in the Netherlands, it remains very strong. Um, the identity of a maritime power and a commercial power is hit really hard by the the war basically stopping them from being that. Um, and I think that the Dutch are struggling to see the place of the Dutch in the world. Um, but even after annexation in 1810, what we're seeing is still a strong sense that they believe they are an independent people and a people apart. In, in 1812, um, Frederick Helmers, I think, um, writes uh, a poem, uh, an epic poem, you know, many, many, many pages of poem, um, the, the Dutch nation or the Hollandish nation, I suppose, um, where he basically traces this all the way back to the, the ancient Batavs and Batavians who were in the, the country at the time of the Romans, uh, all the way through the great naval victories of Trump and De Reuter and um, through the 18th century to, to where they were now. Uh, he lords the land of the, the Netherlands, uh, the people, its spirit, etc. You know, this is a, a, a love poem to the Netherlands, if you will, um, showing that they have a huge um, nostalgia for this great history that they've had uh, and a belief that as a people, they're still a strong people and they can get back to that. Um, so I think it, it really hurts Dutch self-esteem as a, a kind of national self-esteem, this period. Um, it shakes their faith in some of these pillars of, of national identity, um, you know, a maritime power, a commercial power, um, even an, an independent power at some times. Um, and a, a Protestantism diminishes a bit as a, a key facet of identity. But fundamentally, we, we still see Dutchness there um, and we still see at the end of the war, uh, them kind of going back to these old pillars, thinking we need colonies, we need commerce, we're an industrious people, we're an ascetic people. Um, but by the end of the wars, I think there's a bit more of a sense of we're an unassuming people. Um, I think the, the sense of being one of the major powers of Europe, which had lingered on into the 1780s and 90s, that's gone. Um, you know, in the, the early 18th century, the Dutch were one of the major powers by 1815, um, you know, even with Belgium being added in, we're not seeing the Netherlands sit, sitting at the top table of powers, nor do they aspire to. So I guess th there are changes there, um, but Dutch identity does endure. Does Waterloo get seized on as a way to kind of bolster the national image? And, you know, look, we, we can, sure, we, we team up with others, but we can hit alongside um the the big the big wigs if you like and and take on the, the heavyweights of this world is that a, a perception that kind of gets absorbed yeah very much so um in the netherlands waterloo is a dutch victory um no, they, they borrowed some british and some german troops to help them and you know, a, a british field marshal but it's a dutch victory um they're on home soil uh, it's their army that's the backbone of this. It's their supply lines that are the backbone of this effort. Um, the Prince of Orange is one of the core commanders. Um, he's even wounded in the battle. That's how how well engaged he was. And, you know, for all the British disparage them, the Dutch did fight relatively well uh, through the campaign. Um, so the, the Dutch very much see this as a victory, also as a, an attempt. So we, we talked before about, you know, um, England, Scotland, Ireland, Wales coming together through fighting together well we've got belgium and, and 
the Netherlands here, they've just been united as a country. They don't speak the same language particularly. They were split off a couple of hundred years before because of major religious differences. They don't have the same traditions. The Belgians are not too happy about this whole thing, but they fight together on the field of Waterloo. And this is a former kind of formative moment for the House of Orange to say, you know, we are one country. Look how well we've done together. Um, and they really do seize on that. Um, and I think the House of Orange especially seizes on the Prince of Orange's contribution because then they can say, well, you know, look how great your, your crown prince is. Uh, we are the family to rule you. Um, but absolutely, Waterloo is is kind of pivotal in this formation of a an identity going forward. Um, muddied, of course, by Belgium then deciding, actually, you know what, we, we better leave in 1830. Yeah, I was going to say, it doesn't last particularly long, does it? 15 years Alas. later. <laughs> Uh, it's it's all ended in tears when it comes to that idea of unity um let's let's pivot again and kind of double back to france and start and, and run through the different nations and start talking about popular opinion at this stage because when it comes to france there's this big conundrum and this is the one that has always stopped me even attempting to consider popular opinion in france and that's it's a police state for significant parts of this journey uh, which means it's far harder to get to the bottom of public opinion. And sure, um, I remember interviewing Claire Sivita Groschfeld a while back on plays and the way in which certain play performances and the way in which um, people went to the theatre and what they did there could be used as a means of expression that couldn't be picked up by, well, might be monitored by the police, but wasn't an, an obvious sign of dissent, but was nonetheless a dissenting act. So there are ways to kind of tap into it, but what do we know about how people felt? And anybody who thinks that, you know, or wants to kind of point to the plebiscites as an indication of popular opinion just needs to go and do a basic bit of reading about the idea that plebiscites and dictators and 90% votes in favour of something are, are not, you know, an indication of consent. They are normally an indication that somebody's cooked the figures. You need a modern indication of that. Pick up a newspaper and read what's happening in Ukraine right now, as I promptly hemorrhage my Russian listeners, of which there are a few, but are now I'm probably now going to be barred in Russia for criticising the Putin regime. But anyway, back to France. Yeah, I mean, it's an interesting one with France because it is, I mean, we, we might call it a police state now, but it doesn't have the infrastructure and the, the administrative police infrastructure to really police people that well um so people can still express they can say what they want they do say what they want um but actually that element of policing also gives us some of the best indications of what people are thinking and saying um napoleon gets his prefects on a, a weekly basis to report back on the public spirit esprit public uh, of their department now that's not quite the same as public opinion so sometimes i say no the, the spirit's good people are happy it doesn't tell you what they're thinking but when they're not happy they go into quite some detail at times of what people are not happy about, you know, what they've heard people on the street saying, uh, what someone's been prosecuted for or arrested for. Um, and we get great reports in the National Archives and in the departmental correspondence as well um, of what people are saying, what's going on in their minds. Like I say, it doesn't really give you the positive stuff necessarily. Sometimes it does with, you know, people are really happy with this victory or they love the coronation. Uh, I think that was great. Um, but we, we do get a sense through that. Um, I think also 
outside Paris, France isn't that much of a police state. The censorship, of course, and you, you can't do much um, in terms of publications. Um, but in terms of what people are doing and saying in villages, they can't be policed. I mean, when the gendarmes turn up to various villages um, to enforce conscription, they get shot, stabbed, beaten up. You know, th this is routine stuff, people fighting with the gendarmes. So they tend not to go there much. They certainly don't go and listen to what people are saying. Um, so I think you, you will get conversations in the villages, but then we're back to our problem. No one wrote the damn things down. Um, so finding out what public opinion is uh, in France can be difficult. Um, I think that that point about theatre is a good one. Um, of course, theatre censored as much as anything else. But if you put in a play about Julius Caesar, it's pretty obvious what you're talking about. Uh, if you use certain actors even, so under the Restoration, um, using the guy that used to play Napoleon and then putting him in a play about a hero and making him the hero was a political statement. But it couldn't be censored because, you know, it's it's not open. It's just everyone understands what's going on. Um, and under the Napoleonic regime, similar things will have, have happened there as well. Um, I think under the empire, um, beyond the, the kind of public records, I suppose, of, of prefects noting down public spirit, we still do have things like songs, street theatre that we, we get things from. Um, we have some uh, records of what the church is saying as well. Um, so until about 1806, sermons were normally um, preached very heavily in favour of Napoleon. Uh, so we know what people are being told, but we also know when they're not preaching that because that gets reported. You know, it's unusual for a, uh, a church service not to end with praise for the, the imperial family. Um, and so we do get stuff on that. Um, but fundamentally, we, we don't have the, sa the quite the same richness maybe of public resources um, that we would in Britain, uh, even the Netherlands, because of censorship, because of the policing, um, because um, no, of the, the problems of illiteracy in some areas, France is the least literate of the three countries we're looking at. Um, so we don't quite have the number of records, but there, there is enough to give us tantalizing ideas, especially of the oppositional things that are being said. And we have to talk about war within the context of all of that, given the, the dominance of war during this period. How far is war weariness an issue? And I guess the flip side to that is how effectively does news of success and the propaganda that's built around that manage to steer public opinion? Um, I mean, war weariness certainly comes into it, um, especially after about 1810. Um, it's a bit muted in France because Napoleon, of course, does manage to keep war taxation pretty low, requisitions pretty low, by the simple expedient of invading somewhere and making them pay for the war, uh, making requisitions locally. So, you know, France does have to contribute a lot of men and it does have to contribute money and supplies, but nowhere near as many as you might think to sustain that uh, level of war effort. Um, and, you know, when he's got his troops stationed abroad, routinely he uses locals to feed them and clothe them and, and everything else. Um, from about 1810, though, we've got, you know, a few bad harvests combined with the pinch of the continental system, um, combined with a, a general sense that, you know, we, we should have won these wars by now. We've been told about all these victories. Why haven't they stopped? Um, and we do see a bit of war weariness, but it's really after, I suppose, 1812 that it really kicks in, that you start getting people expressing opinions against the war. Um, 1813, conscripts start voting with their feet again. Um, from about 1803, 
through to 1813, the Napoleonic system really refined conscription. It got resistance down from about 20%, 25% of men not turning up for the, the call-up down to about 5%. Um, now they weeded out uh, the, the medical officers who were happy to give out dispensations to anyone. They'd really got this system down. Then 1813, suddenly everyone's getting married left, right and center. They're removing thumbs so they can't serve. They're running for the hills, quite literally, in many cases. Um, no, we're, we're back to the old shenanigans, um, often from men who thought they were past the call-up age and, and kind of, you know, don't want to be called up now. Um, but the flip side of that, I suppose, is, as you mentioned, the bulletins, the propaganda, you know, Napoleon trying to manipulate opinion in his favor. 1813, people are shocked by the scale of the call-up because um, they thought they were winning stuff. But they'd also been told in that bulletin, that you know the army's lost we, we've lost the entire army in russia which was a shock to people before that all they got was unremitting victories now these bulletins are read out in churches they're read out in theaters they're read out in marketplaces everyone will have heard the bulletin they'll have heard the victories and it's really interesting that in 1813 um especially around uh, kind of october leipzig time prefects start writing to the minister of the interior saying can we please have some information from the army People aren't happy. They're wondering what's going on. We want news of victory. Please send us some. Um, and so prefects are clearly indicating there, I think, that the populace has got used to hearing this stuff. They've got used to being reassured that all's well. Everyone knows that bulletins are lies. You know, there's even a, a proverbial phrase to lie like a bulletin. But they want that reassurance. They want to be told. Um, you know, I guess it's a bit like a, a statement from our prime minister. We know full well they're going to be party politicals. There's going to be um, spin, to put it politely. But in times of emergency, danger, you feel reassured, maybe. Some people might feel reassured, at least. Um, and I think that's what Napoleon does very well. Interesting that there's this sense of, look, can you just tell us what we want to hear, please, so that we, we don't feel that everything's going to hell? Um, Oh, I really want to dig, but we, we are rapidly running out of time, so I, I suppose I can't. Um, from a policy perspective, then, what's the impact of all of what you've just kind of outlined to us? Well, well Napoleon does not listen to public opinion in any way for policies. Um, he deliberately doesn't. He thinks he's above public opinion. He thinks that is the clamours of, of people who don't know what they're talking about. Um, so he tries to rise above that and do what he wants. He just does what he wants, believing it to be. Um, representative of the nation. However, if we go back to my definition of public opinion as either active, as in what people say, or latent underlying perceptions, Napoleon has absorbed these underlying perceptions, representations of the world, as everyone else did in France um, in his youth. He's read a lot. He was educated in the same way. He actually shares a lot of those prejudices with general French culture. Um, and so when it comes to his policies, he often relies on his own intuition rather than what he's been told. And that even goes down to information from prefects, from investigators, from people who know what they're talking about, send him reports. If they don't agree with what he wants to do or what he believes, he ignores them. Uh, so for the Netherlands, for example, he imposes huge indemnities on them and demands money from them, even when he's told repeatedly they don't have the cash and they don't have any way to raise that cash because he just doesn't believe it. The Dutch are proverbially rich, therefore they will pay. He demands Dutch fleets and says, you should have 15 ships of the line. And they say, well, we don't. We, we don't have the ships. He says, well, build them. I say, well, we can't. Our harbors aren't big enough. He says, no, you're a big seafaring nation. 
you're a major naval power. If you have any pretensions to being that, build the ships. Now, part of that is him bullying. He does this with everyone. He, he wants to get his own way. But clearly in his mind, he wants the Dutch to be rich, to have a navy, to be commercial. Now, he wants them to have these things that he's always believed them to have, even though in reality, they simply can't do it. So in my view of public opinion, uh, of the latent public opinion, these, these underlying preconceptions, prejudices, ways of understanding the world, Napoleon's policy is very much informed by what is in his mind at any one time, which falls back on these lazy stereotypes. Not all the time. He is responsive to, to information sometimes. Sometimes he goes against these ideas. But there's a, a real correlation between what French opinion of the Netherlands is and what Napoleon demands of them all the way through the period. Um, which, you know, okay, correlation and causation, let's not confuse them. Um, but I think there's enough of a correlation to suggest that Napoleon is influenced by what we might consider a public opinion. Can I throw 1815 specifically into the mix here? Because the the one that's often thrown around when it comes to 1815 is, look, Napoleon's learnt, and this time he's willing to listen. And so the regime that he's trying to institute in, in 1815 is a different type of Napoleonic regime to the one that existed in, uh, you know, 1813-14. Um, and so it's kind of put about as one of the best examples of Napoleon sort of being mindful of wider opinion, let's not necessarily say popular opinion, and then informing policy off the back of that. Would you necessarily agree? Yeah, I mean, there's an extent to which he's doing that in 1815. I think there's always that pragmatism with Napoleon that he, he needs the support, therefore he'll tell people what they want to hear. Um, the actor Dissionel um, is trying to woo the middling sorts. You know, he's trying to prove that he is this new reformed character. He doesn't reintroduce conscription and says this is partly, you know, from, from popular sentiment. I don't want to offend it. But let's be honest here. The actor Dissionel, um, he, he's not going to adhere to. He didn't adhere to his own constitution in the first round. He's not going to do it in 1816, 17, 18 once he's back in power. This is, I, I'm seeing it anyway, as a very short term response to try to get people to accept his return. The conscription point, well, he doesn't need it. He's already called up the class of 1815 the previous year. So he says, well, that rule is still in place. So you're recalled. He's got tens of thousands of return prisoners. Um, his correspondence all the way through April, May and early June of 1815 is about how to clothe and arm the men he's already got. He doesn't need more conscripts. He needs horses, guns, uniforms for the men he's got. Um, no, he, he doesn't want to waste NCOs by siphoning them off to train all these new conscripts, or at least to, to organize them. So there's a very pragmatic sense that, that I've got anyway, that he's put this, this act of dissonnel in place to, to placate people who are complaining. And you know, quite frankly, he'll ride Rushrod over it when he wants to. He hasn't reintroduced conscription, but it wouldn't be useful to do so. It's more useful to, to wait and uh, you know fight the first campaigns with what you've got reintroduce conscription in say July, August, they'll be ready for December for a winter campaign. Um, I might be doing Napoleon a disservice. He might have come back as a greatly reformed man. He may have had a, a road to Damascus moment and realized, no, I need to be the great Democrat. Um, his correspondence though, uh, doesn't read that way. He's still the autocrat. He still makes demands. He still makes unrealistic demands of people. Um, you now behind the scenes, he seems to be the same old guy. Um, so I'm, I'm dubious, but then, you know, 
let's give him the benefit of the doubt. Why not? We've been harsh to him so far. And say maybe, just maybe, he was trying to listen to the people. I mean, that's not exactly consistent with the tone of this podcast, giving Napoleon the benefit of the doubt, if we're being brutally, brutally honest here. Not in the slightest. But, I mean, all people need to know is that, again, I've been gesticulating wildly over the course of Graham's reply there, because, uh, I mean, I see things in much the same way. But let's let's keep things going. Um, And the British, uh, see, when I was prepping the notes for this, I wrote um the phrase i often think of the british quite simply as a mess the trouble is from what you've said about the dutch i think there's the the jury's still out on who who is the bigger mess but there is a a point to be made when it comes to popular opinion because i do sometimes think we're guilty of just forgetting the level of disunity within sections of society about support for the war this idea that the British nation were unified in support of the war is not the case. So what's your reading of the different divisions, first of all? Is this about class divide? Is it about um, just discontent generally with the way in which the politics of the nation is run? Let's not forget that we're not that far out from demonstrations like Peterloo uh, and, and the massacre that ensues. So what's your reading of all of that? I think Britain is certainly a very stratified country and there there are a lot of divisions within the country um, geographically. So people nearer the south coast are actually more likely to want to defend the country because they're more likely to be invaded. Um, the further north you go, you, know, you get to Yorkshire, you, I think it's 28% volunteering stats rather than the 90% that you're seeing in some southern parts. But then you get to Scotland and again, you're back up to 90% in some areas, other areas far lower. Um, so in terms of things like you know volunteering, you're seeing real differences geographically in terms of um loyalism royalism even um it's pretty consistent across the country that most people are loyal but being loyal doesn't mean that you believe everything that you want everything as it is um and you are seeing divisions um across society radicalism is not a working class thing i mean the working class i've already said I, i probably prefer the term laboring poor maybe something like that for um, you know, ordinary people. Um, but radicalism is not a lower class thing necessarily. This is something that all levels of society, possibly beyond the, the very richest, um, will engage with, but it's also pretty minor. Most of the complaints that people are making, most of the demands they're making are actually pretty low key. Um, you know, they, they want small changes, perhaps. Um, and during the war, a lot of that is muted. Um, it's often um kind of transposed into say what we might call industrial unrest with the luddites um things like that so people very interested in in their everyday existence now maybe they reflect on how the war interacts with that so that the war is causing economic depression so we want the war to to end but actually i think it's often very self-interested i mean this is a period where we see the only uh, assassination of a british prime minister in history um and you know we can assume that's a political act, but this is a guy who's been bankrupted by the war, who you know some people said was was sent insane by that, and who decided he'd you know, give Spencer Percival what for. Um, but it's not really a, a political division within society. Um, I think what what we're seeing is people being affected by the war in different ways, 
but also wider trends. Now, the Luddites aren't just protesting war, they're protesting industrialization in some ways, changes to, to social order. Um, they're protesting a lot of different things. Um, I think what we are seeing is a lot of loyalism in Britain, though, all the way through the period. Um, those divisions maybe hide the fact as well sometimes that there is mass um, loyalism on a, a meta sense. So even people who are protesting stuff are still loyal. They are still loyal to the king, to the, the idea of the British constitution, unwritten as it is, uh, to the idea of parliament. They're loyal to that. What they want is reform within the system. They're not revolutionaries. Um, and I think we're seeing that during wartime. Um, I think that the war kind of waxes and wanes for people uh, when Britain's doing particularly badly, when the economy is hit very hard. A lot of people want peace. Um, after 1812, people are kind of more willing to see it through to the end, I think. Um, the, there's a major dip in 1812, of course, uh, with you know, the assassination of Spencer Percival, but uh, the war with America suddenly hits trade exceptionally hard. It's not clear that Britain is going to win Wellington after this great victory at Salamanca, suddenly finds himself back in Portugal and people are wondering quite what, how that happened. Um, and, you know, are they ever going to win this? But by 1813, when the news from Russia comes through, when Wellington takes the offensive again, uh, when trade with the continent starts to pick up, I think British people pretty much are wholeheartedly behind the war. But ironically, that's when we're seeing some of the biggest unrest um, in industrial areas. So um, I guess that's a slightly rambling answer, actually. Sorry about that. But um, yeah, I'm seeing divisions in society, but I'm not seeing divisions between those who oppose the war and those who always support it. Um, and I wouldn't say it's a class thing, particularly. I mean, what you've just done is gone and answered the next three questions that I had lined up for you, essentially. So far from being a rambling answer, I would say that was a comprehensive and erudite um, summary of, of the, the situation, which leads me to one final thing, which is kind of what next? Where do we go from here from a research perspective? Is there scope to better understand this in other nations? I mean, Russia and Austria particularly spring to mind here as areas where more research would be welcome. What's your reading of what we can now do off the back of your work? I'd like to see um, yeah, a lot of work done in, in other countries like Russia and Austria, uh, especially on the side of latent public opinion. This idea that there are underlying ideas in society um, that the, the leaders take on board, they have these underlying perceptions. And this is not a controversial theory by any means that leaders have a way of seeing the world that's embedded. The controversial bit, I suppose, might be for me to claim that public opinion is what they are basing their, their worldview on. Um, but I, I would quite like to see some research on things like, you know, Russia and Austria. How is their policy being made? What are the underlying assumptions behind those policies? Fundamentally, how are people seeing the world and how does that inform what they do? Because um, I mean, my argument is that latent opinion doesn't always push people in a certain direction. Um, it just means that this is how they interpret the world. Um, and therefore, it, it does underpin some policy. So, I mean, I'd, I'd find it fascinating for Russia and Austria. My German uh, is not that great. Uh, my Russian is non-existent. So I'm, alas, going to have to abdicate this to others. But um, it's certainly a, an area to look into. I think wider public opinion as well more work still needs to be done on that. I mean, I've, I've touched the surface um, of what public opinion might be. My methodology, as I described at the start, is mildly chaotic of scrabbling around for anything I can find to show these voices. 
Um, and I think someone with a, a more systematic approach um, or, or finding new sources, other sources might be able to enlighten that more. Uh, and I think more does need to be done on that, more can be done on that. Um, but anyone out there thinking of starting a PhD, don't do three countries over 30 years. It's a bit too much. Yeah, I'd, I'd second that. But it does result in a very thought-provoking book. Graham, that's an hour and 45 of non-stop foot-to-the-floor analysis. Thank you so much for that. Folks, go buy the book. Go buy both books, in fact, while we're at it. Um, so the, the bestseller, let me just emphasize that, the number one best-selling book right now on Amazon. Not that you're going to buy it from Amazon, are you? You're going to go direct to the publisher, which I believe was Pen and Sword, right? Yeah, Pen and Sword with 20% off as we speak. Might still be there in a, a week or two. Okay, so Pen and Sword website. It's quite simply penandsword.co.uk. Google it if you're struggling. Um, it's a number one bestseller. It's entitled Battle, Understanding Conflict from Hastings to Helmand. Probably a slightly bigger scope than we can cover within the context of the Napoleonicist. So yep. apologies, much though I would like to interview you on that we're gonna have to just park that as a as a thought i'm afraid um but folks it's not an amazon bestseller on a whim go buy the thing uh, and because it's a pen and sword one it'll be nice money the other one that we need to focus on is war public opinion and policy now this was published with powerbridge macmillan now if you know about powerbridge macmillan you may know that that's one of those ones where you go Okay, but it's got a Palgrave Macmillan price. So I have a tip for you. And it's a tip that comes from extensive experience of trying to work out how to buy Palgrave Macmillan books. And it's this. If you sign up to their mailing list newsletter thing, periodically they send you a discount code. Now, yes, I know I'm being very kind of ick in suggesting that you buy the book at a discount. But sometimes Palgrave have things like 50% discount sales. They had one recently and I filled my boots because... These books are fantastic, but if, like me, you can't afford those kind of price tags, you need those moments like that. So pro tip, not that I'm a pro, but anyway, we're going to call it a pro tip. Pro, my pro tip is sign up for the newsletter. When the sale comes around and they do have them um, periodically, there'll be a winter sale for sure. There was a summer sale. There was also a reading week sale where they're taking, you know, 40, 50 percent off these titles. That's your moment to capitalize. It's also a point that sometimes the PDFs of these books are cheaper than the hard copies so you might be able to achieve it there apologies i'm encouraging people to buy your book at a cut rate graham no, no, but definitely definitely buy it at a cut rate uh please please endorsement endorsement um but more than anything else go direct to the publisher not to amazon jeff bezos rocket fuel that whole rant all over again you've heard it here um graham thank you so much for your time You've got to come back at some point and we'll talk more about various things. There's a whole myriad of things we could uh, discuss off the back of this. It's been a joy. Thank you. Oh, thank you very much. A huge thank you as ever to my Patreon supporters, my Emperor Level patrons Mark Stoos, JC Kaiser and Todd and Laird Campbell. My Marshall patrons Matt Bone, Marcus Cribb, Rachel Stark, Roy Muir, Liam Telfer, Ger Brown and Graham Swidenbank. My Commander patrons John Haynes, Jane Davis, Bob Burnham, Andy Meakin, Michael Guest and Ross Flowers. And my mentioned in Dispatches patrons, Noah Fink, Andrew Wright, David Maxwell, M. Duck, Anthony Gumbau, Chris Pramus, Mars Reedy, Alexandra Leon, Alistair Campbell-Greve, Beatrice de Graff, 
Brendan Teeling, Colin Fieldhouse, Ed Koss, Bruins Girl, Gareth Copeland, Jeff Maple, Hugh Brennan, Indiana Fats, Jim Deary, Jim Getz, Josh Keeney, Lucy Tatner, Lynn Dawson, Mark Anscombe, Rob Griffith, Ryan Diamond, Rob Coughlin, Mark Trowbridge, Nick Overland, Stephen Colson, Graham Goodwin, Graham Spicer, Keys Bishop, and David Priest. I'll be back very soon, but until then, I'm Zach White. This has been The Napoleon Assist. Take care of yourselves, my friends. Stay well, stay safe, and as always, thank you for listening. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quinn's is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince? They exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns.